You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I turned and looked as you were singing the two songs that Tim led us in about grace. I was watching many of you as you sang. I couldn't help but think as we sang that one verse through many dangers, toils, and snares. We have already come. I'm not sure exactly why this is. I guess I have my suspicions, but when people approach me for conversation during weeks like this, it's usually to tell me a tough story. And I've heard a number of tough stories this weekend already, or this week already. And if I had a chance to chat with each of you, each of you could tell me about some dangers, toils, and snares that you have already come. It's a journey. But it's meant to be a journey together with each other. A journey of broken people, but a journey of people with hope. And I want to think with you this afternoon about what it might look like to journey together through all the dangers, toils and snares, and ups and downs, and joys and sorrows. Just talking with a friend a few hours ago about A situation in his church that has him as pastor just very discouraged. And the next breath, he's talking about such happy, exciting ways that God is moving. And up and down, I felt a little manic depressive talking to him. (laughs) I don't need lithium, I need more of the spirit. I don't mean to suggest that medication is never appropriate. Of course it is. But I do mean to suggest that the spirit is always necessary. What does it mean to journey together as people who hope? Will you pray with me as we ponder this crucial topic, this topic that our Lord is very, very committed to? Before he died, he said, Father, I want my people to be one. Lord Jesus, you are one with your Father. The Trinity is our example of a community. Lord Jesus, you prayed before you went to the cross that because of your atoning work, you became sin and experienced all that your holy soul despises, that as a result of your suffering, that we would become one the way you and your Father are one. We have a ways to go. May we take the next step today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most wonderful and at the same time frustrating things for me when I come to a conference like this, it really is wonderful, but it is difficult at times, is having so many sincere and hungry people ask questions. In almost every case, questions that I can't answer. It's wonderful because I sense, and I have felt it this week very strongly, as I always do, I felt the genuine eagerness and of so many in the middle of life struggles to know more of Christ. To find God's answers in the middle of all the ups and downs of life. And that's a wonderful thing to see the hunger that I feel in my soul that I know you feel in yours. It's difficult for a number of reasons, not the least of which is typically I'm asked a question that requires an hour, a year, a lifetime to ponder. And I have about two minutes. I remember speaking some years ago at Dallas Seminary's Pastors Conference, and I was finishing one talk, and literally I had five minutes to move from this building across campus to another building to speak, and uh, as I closed in prayer for my one presentation, a, a pastor, a very troubled, but just radiating with, with eagerness and wanting to serve God's people, it was clear in the way he talked to me, he said, Dr. Crabb, I have a, a quick question. Well, have I learned that there is no such thing as a quick question. The only quick question is, what time is it? Beyond that, they're all long. (laughs) And I said, well, I have to be elsewhere in about five minutes to begin the next class. I only have a minute. He says, this will only take a minute. And I said, okay, what's your question? And I kid you not, what he said was, could you explain multiple personality disorder to me? (laughs) And how a pastor can be helpful. 
the pressures on all of us, certainly on me, certainly on you, the pressures on all of us to develop a, a sound bite way of thinking. To reduce our understanding of the Christian life to a recipe that's easily understood and neatly packaged and clearly dispensable at the drop of a hat. That's not the journey we walk. Someone has said that simple ideas that help you avoid complexity become simplistic ideas and lose all value. But simple ideas that survive complexity are profound. I believe the deepest questions have the simplest answers, but only after a long period of confusion. The most difficult questions that we face of what does it really mean to love? How do we change? How do we talk to people? How do we get along with each other? How do we... How do we appropriate the hope that's ours and bring it deeply into our soul in ways that make us soar with, like, an, like an eagle and soar up into the skies of hope and joy and glory? How do we do that in the middle of worrying about our kids? And I think the answers are simple, but it sometimes takes a long night of darkness before the simple answer becomes clear. Simple ideas that avoid complexity become simplistic and Simple ideas that survive complexity become profound. A little five-year-old child sings, Jesus loves me. We pat her in the head and say, isn't that sweet? When a 90-year-old man says, Jesus loves me, we stand in awe and we worship. Last night, several Moody students approached me and asked me a question. And it fit again into that category of being asked a question that I find just a, a wonderful opportunity, but in just a few minutes I didn't quite know what to do. The question that I was asked by four Moody students was, could you, could you explain your views on a theology of sanctification? <laughs> and because these students, as every student that I've had a chance to interact with, struck me as very thoughtful, very hungry, very real. They weren't looking for pat answers. They were looking for real answers. Because I sensed that from these students, I, I found my heart just leaping, wishing I had the opportunity to sit for two or three hours and, and to share our journeys and to talk about what we've learned and to learn from them as perhaps they might learn something from me as I talked about my journey of 55 years, 48 as a Christian. And to suggest what is becoming perhaps clear in my mind about what it means to know Jesus and to live in the light of hope. And I found myself wishing I had that opportunity, but I didn't. But I did think after that brief interaction with these students, as I said a few fumbling quick words, I did think that a good answer to a good question is usually simple. But never simplistic. Because the rich answers are answers that have survived great confusion, great bewilderment, many times great despair. And out of these difficulties emerges a truth that the Spirit of God whispers in your soul, and you say, that's it. For years, the conservative Christian world has, in my view, far too often offered many simplistic views of how to change. These students last night were basically saying, how do I change? What's the theology of sanctification? What does it mean to grow? Is the grace of God that we've been singing about a one-time act when you were converted, and then grace goes on suspension until it takes us home? Or is grace an ongoing reality? And if it is, how does it change us? And too often, in our circles, I fear that we've come up with simplistic views of change that avoid complexity. We've tended too often, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, to reduce discipleship to a program of activities, to a series of ten basic steps to Christian maturity, and we've assumed that spiritual growth occurs automatically if we perform certain activities. I fear that our understanding of sanctification is too often focused on knowledge which of course is crucial, 
and conformity. And of course we're to conform to the image of Christ. And we've reduced that to just amassing facts about the Bible and doing things that we know we should do. And if we learn our Bibles and do what we should, then somehow growth will take place. And so often, because we think like that, the deep issues of the soul remain unaddressed. The result, I suggest, has been, and perhaps there are numbers here in the audience today and perhaps in the radio audience who would agree with this. Maybe you're among this number. I felt it at times. The result has been that a large number of Christians have lived public lives of victory and private lives of defeat. Privately, we still struggle with petty little things, a fear of how we come across. Do you ever wonder what speakers feel when they walk to the microphone? Do you ever wonder what struggles occur inside of me? Do you ever wonder what jubilant fellow he sang last night? Talk to him today for a little bit. What happens? Privately, we struggle with lots of things. We, all of us, struggle with lots of things. A certain fear of how we're coming across, of who really likes us, of who would like us if they really knew us. And I'd be real open with you and tell you that at one, in one way, coming to Moody Founders Week and standing behind the platform and having the wonderful opportunity to speak at this incredible event, which I regard as such a privilege, there's one sense in which it's easy because none of you knows me. Now, I don't know you, and a part of me wants to keep it that way. <laughs> because my guess, if I got to know you and you got to know me, we'd all get pretty disillusioned quick. Because privately, there's things going on that so often never get addressed. So often in our communities, we don't know each other. We keep our chairs facing forward. Tough issues never get addressed, and therefore simplistic answers never get exposed. What is sanctification, I was asked last night? What is the word change really mean? That's the question the students were asking, and I presume it was not only to respond to a, a, an assignment in a class, which it was partly that, but it was a very personal thing. Yeah, I've got to write a paper on it, but I want to know what it means. I want to know what it means. Is my mother going to change, somebody will say. Is my friend who's in an adulterous relationship, how does, how does their heart get softened to recognize their sin? He claims to be a believer and he's committing adultery. What's going on? How do I walk with him in the middle of that? How does change occur? If you ask the question meaningfully and get honest with yourselves, you will open up a world of complexity. And you will go through a long season of confusion where things will not make sense. You will enter mystery. The mystery of how the Spirit of God works. We can talk about it, but we can never reduce it to our explanation. We've been told certain things that we can claim as truth because the Bible says it, but it leaves us with awe and waiting and, God, we don't know how, quite how you work. You ever looked at your life and gotten confused as to how, how you might change? <clears throat> I may have shared in past years that I used to have quite a problem with stuttering. I used to be a stutter, stutterer. I no longer do. How did I change? Does the change from stuttering to hopefully some level of fluency have anything to do with sanctification? Is that a spiritual issue? I believe it is. Just to get you confused with me before I open the word, let me tell you a story. I'm afraid some of you are not yet confused and I don't like to be lonely. Let me share very candidly a little tiny slice of my story. I believe from the time I was very, very little that I felt a strange pressure to live up to certain potential. felt that from earliest days. In the first grade, I hadn't thought of this in years until as I was thinking about what I wanted to share with you, this memory came back to me. In the first grade, Miss Carroll, my first grade school teacher, 
assigned her students on that very first day of first grade to three different tables, a red table, a variety of red tables, some green tables, and some yellow tables. And the first day, she lined us all up, and I can still visualize this in my mind. It's funny how certain images stay. And all the little first graders were lined up, about 25 of us, I suppose, and I was somewhere in the middle, and Miss Carol would walk down and say, hello, Miss Carol, your name is whatever, and she came to me, and she did to me what she did to everybody else. She assigned us to a table. Let's see, uh, Johnny, I want you to go to the um, hmm, yellow table, uh, Sally Green, uh, Brenda Red, um, Larry, let's see, I think you should go to, hmm, I think the red table would be the right place for you to go. I remember as a kid thinking, what makes me a red table guy? <laughs> Took me about two weeks to figure it out. The red table were for the students that the teacher thought was, were fairly slow. That's true. She looked in my eyes and said, you're not too bright. <laughs> You go to the red table. The yellow table, I discerned in about two weeks, was for the average kids, and the green table was where the smart kids, in the teacher's mind, were assigned. And I'll never forget. After two weeks, when I discerned that, something inside of me said to, my, I said to myself, I'm going to make it to the red table. I worked hard. I made it to the red table, or whichever one I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe I belong right at that red table, I suppose. Slow, average, smart. I was assigned to the slow. I wanted to get to the smart. Whatever the colors were, I have no idea. Ah, the shame that I feel. But I remember feeling a pressure. I'm going to get to the smart table, whatever color it was. I'm going to get there. And I worked hard to excel. What's going on in my soul? As a six, seven-year-old little boy wanting to get to the smart table, whichever color that was. I believe that there was a pressure going on in my little forming soul that had nothing to do with spiritual formation, that had everything to do with spiritual deformation. I believe that in biblical terms, what was happening there, the pressure I felt to get to the smart table, was a child's effort to find himself using resources that he could command and control. To become a whole person in my own power. Can't be done, but I believe it could. That's why the Bible calls it foolishness. It's called living in the energy of the flesh. Conforming with the world's standards as the devil cooperates. The three enemies work together in that little boy's soul. Looking back, I believe my stuttering served a function. It got me off the hook. Because I stuttered, people dropped their expectations so I wouldn't have to perform because I had a speech impediment. I went through years of speech therapy, which of course helps many. It didn't help me. Let me tell you when I stopped stuttering. This is to add to the confusion now. I stopped stuttering when I was in graduate school in my fifth year of training when I was an intern at the University of Illinois in the counseling center and Dr. Lou Eight a psychologist who I did not know well, and no none of the students wanted to have Dr. Eight for a supervisor because he was known as kind of a, a gruff sort of a person, and we didn't want to have him for our supervisor. I didn't know Dr. Eight, never spoke with him, but one day in the hallway, he was walking down the hallway where I was walking up, and he stopped me and said, Larry, how you doing? And I responded to Dr. Eight, and I stuttered. And Dr. Eight said to me, and this is just about verbatim, You stutter! I used to stutter, too, and I got sick of it, so I quit. Why don't you? <laughs> That's the day I stopped stuttering. Go figure. It's true. That was a turning point in my speech problem. Does that make sense to you? Oh, come on. Don't go shaking your head and say yes. I don't know. You don't know. But that's what happened. I worked for a year with a young lady with... Psychogenic seizures, seizures that had no basis in neurological problems, epilepsy, they were entirely caused by non-neurological, non-physical factors. And she came to me because her physicians could find nothing wrong with her, and she was having regular seizures, and she was a mild, multiple personality struggle. 
And I worked with her for about a year. And after a year of counseling with her, she came into my office one day. I knew her well. We were had become close friends, actually, with her family and my wife and I with hers. And she came in one day, and I don't know what happened, but I behaved very non-therapeutically. And I remember looking at her and saying, you know, I'm sick and tired of you being so messed up. I want you to change now. That was the day her seizure stopped. They stopped for two years. They came back a little bit. The day she integrated as a multiple. Put that into a textbook. It's true. Anybody confused yet? How do we walk together to help people change? Another woman I'm aware of with multiple struggles has taken years and years of sacrificial ministry for slow change to take place. It's hard to find a pattern, isn't it? I've walked for nearly 20 years with a man, a close friend, who has a history of terrible sexual abuse and as a result has, partly as a result, has struggled with sexual perversion. His mother abandoned him when he was young. His father was very neglectful and mean-spirited. And my friend first consulted me years ago for severe depression. We've walked together ever since. And there's been no one defining moment of change that took place in his life, but this man today has a strong marriage, loves the Lord, and ministers to me deeply. How did all that change occur? I'm not real sure. How does change occur? And how do we as a community of God's people facilitate change in one another? How do we relate to each other? A deep growing conviction of mine is that the evangelical church needs desperately to attend far more carefully to the very difficult issue of how, how do we talk to each other over breakfast? How do we relate to each other in a way that really means that we turn our chairs? How do we relate to each other in ways where power happens? What does it mean to sit with somebody and to listen to the voice of the Spirit? What's that mean? We're not going to understand a theology of change until we understand a theology of community. How do we relate? I want to suggest two very simple thoughts to you and then turn to our text in just a moment. I believe that one anchor point, not the whole picture, but one simple truth is that change occurs when two things happen. In community. It occurs in other ways, but this is one part of the picture. Change occurs when two things happen. Number one, when we experience brokenness in the presence of grace. Do you know how often we run from that? I don't want you to see how broken I am. Because when you see my brokenness, it really isn't attractive. It's ugly. It's not pretty. And if you knew me well, as my wife knows me well, you would understand that it takes grace to stick with this broken guy. And when I know you well, it's going to take grace for me to stay with you. Because you're going to drive me crazy. As I'll drive you crazy. When we experience brokenness in the presence of love, when we see how passionate we are for all the wrong things, how insecure we are, and how unable we are to change, and how desperately defeated we so often feel when somebody still wants to be with us. What did the prophet mean in Zephaniah 3 when he said God's going to arrange it so when he looks at us he's going to burst out into song every time he sees us? A group of us prayed together before coming out, and one friend prayed for me as I was about to speak, and she said, Lord, may Larry know how much you adore him. He sees it all, and he still sings. That's grace. Can I do that for you? When we experience brokenness in the presence of love, the first element, I suggest, of change in community, the second element of change in community is when we experience hope. When someone stirs within us that longing to know God that's stronger than all of our insecurities. 
When someone stirs within us that passion to know Jesus, that's actually stronger than making a good impression or getting somebody to like us. Or even when the passion to know God is even stronger, now be careful with this, stronger than wanting our kids to turn out well. I don't think in the last five or ten years I've ever been more moved than listening to an older man, and my wife knows the story I'm going to tell now, an older man and his wife when we were at a conference a few years back. And this man just impressed both of us, he and his wife, with their love for the Lord and their love for each other and their gentleness and their kindness and their wisdom and their discernment. And in the course of meeting with them that week, they shared with us as mentoring this young couple, Rachel and me, they were quite elderly, they share with us they have five kids, and not one of them knows Christ. And my question was, how is it possible to love Jesus in the middle of that kind of pain? They stirred hope in me that no matter what happens in my life, my passion for Christ can remain. I felt hope when we experience brokenness in the presence of love, when we experience hope because somebody else models that their passion has survived the worst trial. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. The heart of what I want to say to you today is this, that as children of hope, as a family that knows that the last chapter turns out just wonderfully, that we have at our disposal the power to relate to each other in a way that helps us to experience our brokenness and helps us to experience our hope. We can relate to each other in a way that makes a difference. It was last Sunday in Sunday school, I think it was, maybe it was two weeks ago, I forget, when our Sunday school teacher, Dr. Bruce Demarest, was teaching on spirituality, and just in passing he mentioned Revelation 3.20. and made the comment that we've often heard that we've used that verse for evangelism, and God has one souls to Christ through that, but the meaning of the verse, perhaps, about Christ is standing at our door and knocking, and if anybody opens a door, he'll come in and sup with us. He's talking to believers, and he's saying that I would like to have the intimacy of spending time with you. And as Dr. Demarest mentioned that verse in passing, I felt my soul just leap. I'm not sure if I've had a supper with Jesus for a while. I've had supper with my wife, of course, and with many friends, and it's been intimate and wonderful and good. What does it mean to sup with Jesus? And I found a stirring. And then I, a day or two later, was talking with a good friend who's here this morning. And we chatted for an hour. My wife was sitting in a chair in front of the fireplace, and I was sitting in the other chair, and we were, I was talking, and she was reading. And when the hour was up, I, I turned to her and I said, because of that conversation, I, I just feel so much more passionate about knowing Christ. What happened in that conversation? Why was it good? What does good community look like? How can we walk as children of hope in a way that makes us safe to be broken and stirred with hope? Matthew 27, I want to read you a passage, a familiar one, in verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And at the time, in all of his life, when Jesus most longed for community, his community failed. When Jesus, God in the flesh, was experiencing not brokenness over sin, because there was no sin in our impeccable Savior, but was experiencing deep pain and deep anguish of soul, and in the middle of his pain, he, he turned to his friends and he opened up and he said, Be with me. Stay with me. When's the last time I've done that with somebody? Remember, I was teaching at a conference in Glen Erie, Navigator headquarters, some years ago, and I was upstairs. There was a week-long conference, and I was doing a lot of the speaking, and it was toward the end of the week, and I remember 
sitting up in my room knowing there were 300 people waiting downstairs for me to go counsel with somebody in front of the entire group as a demonstration. I remember saying to myself, I can't do it. And I thought, I want so much right now to let somebody know how badly I'm hurting so somebody can come and pray with me before I go down there and get up and do my thing. And I heard some voices outside my door in the hotel-type place where we were staying, and it was a friend, and I thought, I'll open the door and ask him to come in and pray with me. And then my very next thought was, I don't want anybody to see me like this. I can pull it off. You ever been there? I'm grateful for the ten heads that nodded. The rest of you, you really ought to think about it. (laughs) And then I thought about Gethsemane and the Lord opening his soul up to these three friends. When I thought about that, I opened the door and lunged for my friend and said, please come in here, I'm not doing well. I told him what I was struggling with and he said, let's pray together. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to pray. You're going to pray. Watch with me. In my little way, I was saying that. In Jesus' infinite way, beyond our comprehension, he was saying the same thing to his friends. Look at the humility. Sit here, he said, to the eight disciples while I go over there and pray. And then he took Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I want you to ponder that just for a minute. He just left the upper room where they had the Last Supper, where Judas was exposed as a traitor. And so the eleven of them left the upper room and walked to Gethsemane, and the Lord had given his discourse during this entire time and had told Peter he'd betray him. And and now they get to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, and Jesus turns to the eleven, and he says to eight of them, you stay here, and to three of them, he said, you come with me. Aren't pastors told to never play favorites? Christian leaders are the loneliest people in the world. It strikes me that Matthew's writing this, and he doesn't throw in a phrase like, yeah, when Jesus chose Peter, James, and John, I kind of wonder why he didn't choose me. Peter, James, and John, you come with me, you three, you eight stay here. Gentlemen, come with me. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him, And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. What an interesting phrase. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. We heard beautifully sung, man of sorrows. That was all of his ministry, all of his adult years at least. But now what he's saying, what the inspired writer is saying is that all the sorrows he's felt up until this point, he came to his own, his own received him not, and weeping over Jerusalem, and all the sorrows that our Lord felt with the, when knowing what was in men's hearts and not giving himself to them, and And all the sorrow that he felt was as nothing compared to what the sorrow was entering into his soul right now. It was the beginning of a level of sorrow he had never before experienced. And he made this known to his special three friends. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What that literally means is this. Our Lord is essentially saying, the sorrow that I feel is so intense that it is not relieved that will crush the life out of me. When's the last time you felt like that at two in the morning? And you called nobody. You struggled alone. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Another gospel, I think it's Mark, uses the phrase sore amazed. Our Lord was sore amazed in the Literal Greek is frightening to contemplate what our Lord was saying there. We're in the, out of our league by talking about this, but the language suggests that our Lord was saying something like this. I didn't know it would hurt this badly. The words for sort of maze in the original have the connotation of surprise. Now that I'm getting a prevision of what's ahead for me when I become sin to pay for the sins of the world... It's catching me off guard. The pain is so bad. And he made this known to three people. What a model of vulnerability. It's a tragedy for a Christian to walk the journey alone. How many of you have secrets? Never shared. No one knows. You come to church. 
you guys do what I do, put on your blue blazer and your tie and your blue shirt. Socks that match, I think. I forgot to check. People say, doing fine. You ladies put on a nice skirt and blouse, dress. How you doing? Fine, thanks. The Sunday in church, when someone says, how you doing? Say, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. See what happens. <laughs> There's a time and place for everything. I'm not suggesting that. We keep so many things to ourselves. Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, in real life, the real man, the real author, belonged to a club where he had 12 men that were his special friends in a club. And one day, purely as a prank, not being able to anticipate the consequences, Arthur Conan Doyle, this is a true story, sent an anonymous note to his 12 friends. And the note read, Dear so-and-so, all is found out. Flee at once. All 12 men left England within a week. That's what happened. Our Lord had no secrets. I am hurting really bad. I don't like to admit that I'm hurting really bad because I'm doing fine. I once heard a preacher tell the story of working with a woman that came to him, a young woman that said, I'm so depressed. And he said to her, depressed? You're more than a conqueror. What's wrong with you? That's bad counseling. Our Lord said, I'm struggling. Would you stay with me and keep watch? What happened to the three disciples? I fell asleep. Part of my reaction is, Lord, why'd you pick those three? Because you didn't have much of a choice. You had to pick one of us. Why'd you pick those three? Well, it's striking and to notice that these three, Peter, James, and John, were a threesome that had been given two other special opportunities to be with the Lord in a way that no other disciple was given. There were three times in the Gospels where Peter, James, and John were ushered by our Lord into his presence to experience something that no other disciple was granted the privilege to see. One of them was here in Gethsemane, of course, but the first one was at the raising of Jairus' daughter, remember? The 12-year-old girl had died, and they said, don't trouble the master because our sick girl has already died. There's no point in having the healer come. Why? Because he can handle sickness, but he can't handle death. And Jesus said, I presume very calmly, uh, she's asleep. And they all laughed, and he said, Peter, James, and John, you three guys, come here. Let's go inside the room where the girl is lying there dead. And so Peter, James, and John walked in, and there was Jesus looking at this body of a 12-year-old girl who had just died. Remember what he did? Literally, what he did was he said, young lady, wake up. What a silly thing to say, unless you're God. She woke up. And the Bible says she woke up instantly. It wasn't one of these, you know, it was like, hey, mom, I'm hungry. What's for lunch? You know, that kind of a thing. She was dead. You're Peter, James, and John. What's the impact on you? No problem beyond his power to solve. No problem. It's beyond his power to solve. What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What manner of man is this? The blind can see, the lame walk, the sick are healed. What manner of man is this? Even death is not beyond the scope of his power. Now, when you know that there's power to deal with the person's problem who's sharing with you their agony, what happens to your soul when you know God has the power? Answer, your soul settles down. I can't stand it when I share a burden with somebody and their response is, Ooh. Don't you hate it when your doctor looks at the x-ray and goes, Oh my goodness. <laughs> what do we do about this? But when you share me horrible struggles, and again, just this week I've heard three or four stories that just have broken my heart. And I hear that and I found myself thinking, if I would have seen Jesus actually raise the dead, would I have learned 
the lesson of that first interaction, and would I therefore become good community for my friends because I'd be able to stay still in the middle of their struggle. Not indifferent, but quiet in the presence of omnipotence. Your problem isn't beyond God. I don't know what he's going to do. But his power is limitless. Therefore, I don't need to get all frantic and figure out, well, what do I do? What do I do? How do I handle this? I can stay calm in the presence of terrible pain. And I can weep with you without getting frantic if I've learned the first lesson that Peter, James, and John were exposed to when Jairus' daughter was raised. The second lesson that Peter, James, and John learned was when the Lord invited them to walk up the mountain with them to the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened there? Well, again, put yourself in the shoes of these three Jewish men. And here this ordinary Jewish carpenter who had become a teacher, the Messiah, who they recognized as the Son of God, was, but still looked very ordinary, was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah showed up. I mean, I think you'd wonder if you're having a psychotic hallucination. They weren't. It was real. What would they learn from that, do you suppose? What effect would that have on their souls? Put yourself in their shoes. Think about it. What would happen if all of a sudden my face began to shine brightly in your presence right now? Jesus' face shone like the sun. I would think that that experience would forever put to rest the idea that life is humdrum. That experience would likely forever put to rest the idea that all that's going on is what I see and it's just a hard, blotting struggle day in, day out. Life is just so daily. No! What we're a part of, as I spend time with my wife, as I talk with some friends, as I speak to you today, this is no ordinary moment. There's a battle being fought in the heavenlies. And our glorious Lord has won, and He's working out His victory, and it's glorious. And that means that when you share with me your struggles, when you tell me how hard things are, you're overwhelmed with sorrow, that you're, you're surprised by the level of pain that you feel since this happened to your kids. You're surprised by the level of pain that you feel since the death of your loved one. You're surprised at the level of pain that you feel if I'm... If I'm a person who has seen the glorified Lord, maybe internally, not only do I relax because of His power, but I hope because of His glory. It's going to be all right. Your future is glorious, and I can just stay quietly hopeful. Oh, folks, understand this. Powerful counseling has just about nothing to do with technique and everything to do with having had a vision of Jesus. And these three disciples had these two experiences, and the Lord chose them, having had the experience of seeing His power that could handle anything, of seeing His glory, which meant there's a bigger picture going on, and we're part of a drama that's unbelievable. And we can hope that the journey is continuing, and oh, this is so hard now, but it's all part of movement toward glory. And therefore, my hope for you remains in the middle of your horrible struggles, and these three had those lessons, but it wasn't enough. They shared their struggles with Jesus, and they fell asleep. It's interesting that Peter, just a few minutes before this event, had said to the Lord, boastfully, even if I had to die with you, I'll never disown you. And he falls asleep a little while later when the Lord needs him to stay awake, and the Lord comes back after his first of three prayers and wakes him up and says to Peter, couldn't, couldn't stay awake for an hour, could you? What I hear Jesus saying to Peter is this, you haven't learned the lesson of brokenness. I don't hate you because you fell asleep. I would have liked for you to stay awake. I sure could have used it. And frankly, now that you've fallen asleep, Peter, you really have lost an opportunity to touch me. Certain opportunities are forever gone. When he came back after his third prayer and said, are you still sleeping? I believe what he's saying there is essentially this. The opportunity to touch me in a certain way is forever gone. But I'm not asking you to sit around in guilt and self-contempt. I'm saying that the past is history and the future is always available. 
Peter, you didn't learn the lesson of brokenness, did you? You need supernatural strength to be community for anyone. It isn't your PhD in counseling which makes you adequate for community. It's your knowledge of Christ. It's your brokenness. It's the attitude that comes out of you when somebody shares with you their horrible struggles and you stay calm in the presence of God and hopeful because you've caught a glimpse of His glory. And then the third thing which they learned in the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe, was this. Looking back on what happened in the Garden, I presume Peter, James, and John, and we have some testimony from the later epistles, that they said something along these lines. Jesus will go to any length to give his people life. He'll go through this level. We didn't know it was this bad. That's what he went through for me. Lord, your love constrains me. Lord, you'd love me like that. What can I do for somebody else? You tell me your struggles, the power is adequate. You tell me your despair, the hope is there because the glory is visible in my eyes of faith. And then something in me just wants to move toward you and say, what can I do to be a blessing? I'd love to move into your life. And when you sense the energy of love coming out of me, something stirs within you. Can you imagine... Having a couple of friends that were characterized by those kinds of passions. Can you imagine having a friend, and I do have several. I have a wife who's like this. A few friends that are like this. Who've seen me when I'm just awful. Who see me when I'm so frustrated over my story. And they don't make the classic mistake of most Christians in their community. They don't try to help me because they know the power comes from God and they therefore remain quiet as opposed to getting desperate to help. The biggest impediment to being powerful is trying to help somebody. I may have told the story before when I was in the hospital and Dr. Jim Houston, founder of Regent College, one of my heroes, uh, a mentor to some degree. I wish I had much more time with the gentleman. He's in his late 70s and he just knows God in a way that not many do. And he called me when I was in the hospital. And in his little Scottish voice, I picked up the phone and he said, Larry, this is Jim Houston calling. I don't do it very well, but that's the best I can do. Dr. Houston, so kind of you to call. Yes, Larry, I heard that you were struggling with cancer. and I had a thought for you, Larry. Okay. I believe you're in commander training. Huh? <laughs> yes, laddie, and people up here, we're all praying for you, and I've heard so many people the last few days say, poor laddie, poor laddie, poor laddie. Laddie, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, privilege, laddie. Yes, privilege, laddie. Well, goodbye now, and he hung up. <laughs> I hung up the phone, and I just burst into laughter. Something stirred within me. I was an emotional wreck, and I talked to Dr. Houston, and I was worshiping God. I wonder what happened. Well, he knew the power of God was adequate to handle me. He knew the glory was ahead. He was, he was relaxed. He knew God would go to any lengths to touch my life. I was in great hands. And he wanted to go to whatever lengths he could do with a simple phone call, and so he did, and he gave himself to me over the phone in two minutes. He didn't make the awful mistake that I make all the time. When I do something with somebody I think is helpful, I always say to them, We helped. What's the effect? Feeling better now? Oh, folks, don't go into a hospital room and visit with them and offer a prayer and then, amen. Feeling better now? Don't do that. <laughs> Can you imagine having a community of people that remain deeply quiet because they trust the power of Christ? Do you imagine having a community of people who hear all of your struggles and, and have seen the glorified Christ by the eye of faith? And they know that your struggle is part of a glorious drama. They just don't lose hope. And because of that reason, because of those reasons, they know the power of Christ. They know the glory of Christ. They've learned the lesson of Jairus' daughter's raising. They've learned the lesson of the transfiguration. On the basis of that, when they hear your struggles, they don't back away or get nervous. But they relax in the presence of brokenness. And they stay right there. They give you the gift of their presence, and you're internally going, I like this. And then because they're aware of the love of Christ who goes to any length, who gave his life so I could go to heaven, 
They say, that resonates with me. I want to love others the way Christ loved me. And then I get the, the note, I get the phone call, I get the comment, I get the word. And I realize they're there for me. And change happens when we live together as people of faith. God's power is enough. As people of hope, the glory is ahead. As people of love, who model our Lord in moving toward each other without retreat. That's what it means, I submit, to turn our chairs toward each other and to live as children of hope. To become a safe place where I can be broken in your presence and you won't get nervous. You'll have faith. You'll have hope. And you'll have love. And you'll help me to see the face of God. Lord Jesus, we're your body. And we're so busy that we don't relate. And yet the essence of your existence is relationship because you exist in the eternal community of the Godhead and you've called us to relate the way you do. Teach us a little more because of our time together and what it means to realize that the victory has been won, your power has conquered death, the glory is ahead and you've stopped at nothing. You've gone to the greatest lengths to give us life overwhelmed by those truths. Teach us to relax and to rest in you in each other's presence and to never lose hope as we're with people whose lives are such a mess and to give whatever your spirit prompts us to give to reflect the heart of Christ to one another. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.